The most dangerous place you can be as a trial lawyer is to think you've got it figured out. I'm still trying to get better. I still have the passion for it. I believe in it. Everyone can learn to do what I do. And yet there's a group here that continues to get extraordinary verdicts. Trial Lawyers University is revolutionizing educating lawyers to be better trial lawyers. It's been invaluable to me. Trial Lawyers University, where the titans come to train. Produced and powered by LawPods. Happy day, everybody, because we're here with Mike Hill out of what part of Ohio are you from? Cleveland? I'm everywhere, man. But yeah, based in Cleveland, but everywhere. So Everywhere in Ohio. Mike is originally from Flint, Michigan. When I heard that, I'm like, because I'm from the suburbs of Detroit, Birmingham, so probably about an hour away from each other. But I used to go to Flint on a regular basis for court. I lived back in Michigan. And all I could think when I was there every time is, who the hell would ever live here? <laughs> this place is, <laughs> it is like... It ain't great. Everything. It ain't great. Let's just say it's not surprising that they had poisoned water there. Let's put it that way. Well, Tragic. I got the hell out. There's a reason I don't live in Flint, Michigan anymore. So. Thank God. Thank God. So tell us about how did you get to Cleveland to become a trial lawyer? So it's a roundabout situation, man. But right by your neck of the woods, high school, I played football all through high school. It was pretty good. I ended up getting recruited and went down to a uh, prep school, Orchard Lake St. Mary's, which is in West Bloomfield, Bloomfield Hills area, right by Birmingham, where you're from. Hold on a sec. So you go to this preppy... Nice. I know a lot of kids that went there that were really well, really well. I thought I grew up in a nice house and stuff and like maybe call it like upper middle class. But the kids I w knew that went there, they were rich as hell. I mean, they had big houses on the lakes. And so oh, yeah. did you grow up like that, too? So did you fit right in there, Mike? Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what Flint, Michigan is like, right? <laughs> we had one lake called Thread Lake and literally it had like it was like full of like cars that were abandoned that people had like trashed in it. I'm not joking. So I go down there. No, it's a total culture shock, right? So I go down there and it's it's basically two worlds when you're in there, right? So there were the kids that went there from the area, very wealthy, all drove like the nice little preppy BMWs, that kind of stuff. And they were snobby little pricks, basically. And then there was the athletes, right? So it was like group of like, you know, us, right? So it was a lot of guys from Pontiac, which is not a great area, Flint, Detroit. <laughs> so we'd be in like one side of the cafeteria, you know, because you're there, we lived there. You're in one side of the cafeteria for all three meals. And then you got the other kids in the other side. Now, the funny part, though, is that they were like the little like fan club of the athletes because we had like one bunch of state championships, nationally ranked, that kind of stuff. But no, it was a culture shock for sure. You know, I had never worn a tie. I didn't know how to tie a tie. When I got there, you know what I mean? So I'm trying to figure this out. This is pre-internet, so you couldn't just look at it, you know? So I got some big, fat, triple Windsor thing on to start. It was a whole world, man. So you go to Orchard Lake St. Mary's for prep, and then you graduate from there, and, and then where do you head off to from there? So I head off to this strange school in Wisconsin called Concordia University to play football, which was bizarre, to say the least. It was a very strange experience. Very Lutheran. I'm not Lutheran. I didn't grow up religious. It was a very different thing. It's very, uh, it's very religious. I'll leave it at that. Okay. <laughs> very religious. I remember one of the first days I was walking. I don't want to offend anybody here, but I was walking down the hallway and I see this kid's door is open. He's got this big, you know how it is in college. People have posters up, but this is a different kind of poster, different kind of school. And it says everything I ever needed to know I learned in the Bible. And I was like, whoa, where am I right now? This is an 18 year old guy. You know, that's what he's like bragging about. So I stayed there for a year, 
finally did well in school because I had nothing to do except for study because there was literally nothing to do there. So I just like buried myself in a library. Okay. So I had like a 4.0 there. Graduated from high school with like a 2.5. All right. So I was like, I got to figure stuff out. And there was a football coach there who had just come there that year. And he was like, man, there's this school. He's like, you're a weirdo. You're a weird dude. I was like, thank you. And he's like, there's this weird little school in Ohio I used to coach at called Oberlin College. And it's, it's you know, totally strange. It's bizarre. The people are weird. He goes, you'd love it. So I don't know if this is a compliment or not. But I end up transferring over there. Again, now this is like a top 20 liberal arts college school in the country. I have no business being there. A year and a half ago, I got less than a year ago. I'm like, I can't pass like elder but two. Like, I have no business getting into one of the best colleges in the country. They let me in for football. I did well there. And then the rest is momentum. You know, here I am. Momentum. And then, but now you're in Cleveland, though. So why not Flint? Why Cleveland? Well, I think that that's somewhat self-explanatory. So no, if it was if it was L.A., it would be self-explanatory. OK, so what was the draw to Cleveland? Because <laughs> I've been to Cleveland. It's not that self-explanatory. OK, OK. I thought Cleveland was like the greatest place in the world coming from Flint. I was like, oh, man, this is amazing. Look at this. There aren't like homeless people everywhere. So I'm in Oberlin College which was about 45 minutes, an hour outside of Cleveland. I meet who becomes my wife at the time. She's two years behind me. So we're like, what do we do? We actually end up taking two years off of college where I moved back to Flint and ended up working in a warehouse for two years. She wants to go back to Oberlin, okay, which is she takes two years off with me. We go back to Oberlin so she can finish up at the Conservatory of Music. She's an opera singer. So I'm like, well, I got to bide some time during those two years. I don't know what I'm going to do. I always wanted to be a professor, but I was like, look, I'll go to this Case Western, this law school. I'll go to law school for two years. After two years, I'll ditch it. I'll go to grad school like I wanted to become a professor. And again, here I am, you know, I got, I was in law school and just wrote it out. It's not the most inspirational story. I'm not the kid at like 10 years old who's like reading To Kill a Mockingbird who's like, I'm going to be a lawyer, anything like that. It was just a product of circumstance and, and made the best of it. But you graduated from Oberlin, but your wife left early and then you went and worked in a warehouse. Is that what you're saying? That's right. Worked in a warehouse for two years. What kind of warehouse? What were you doing? Driving a forklift? It was the life, man. It was, I was living the dream. Yeah, I was driving a forklift, picking boxes off of shelves stacking them up, shrink racking them up and putting them on a semi. That was my job all day long. But I, there was a part of me and it was like one of those pickers. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's the forklift that goes like 30 feet in the air. And you're like, yeah. So the first time I did, I'm obviously terrified. After a while, you're <laughs> totally out of control, breaking every OSHA guideline there is, having fun with it. You know, you're 24 years old or whatever. And so I didn't know what I was going to do. One day I remember, now I have not really met my in-laws or who are going to be my in-laws yet. My wife, then wife, is from Missouri. We haven't married yet. So I'm going down to see him. Now it's the day before Christmas Eve. So I've been there a year and a half at this point. Going down to drive down to Missouri the next day to see your parents. They don't know me. I don't think I've even met them yet. So I'm driving a forklift. One of these pickers, they call it. The forklifts are behind you. You got that glass right in front of you. And I'm driving it. And I'm going through and I see something, I'm distracted. I see something to my right. I see one of the guys in the warehouse, he's talking to a customer and I just zone out for some reason. And I'm watching it and then it's just this boom, this crash and my face just smashes off of this plexiglass thing. And the guy looks at me, he's like, what happened? And I'm just like sitting there, I'm like. And he's like, what are you spitting out, gum? I was like, I think it's my teeth. I go in the bathroom and I look and my front two teeth are just totally like a, it's like a half moon. They're just gone. Now it's the day, it's like noon, the day before Christmas Eve. And I'm going to go down and meet my in-laws who I think are going to be my in-laws the next day. Now, fortunately, they're from Southern Missouri. So missing teeth is not like that uncommon. <laughs> okay, but, it's not a deal breaker for that. 
Yeah, right. So I end up, the guy puts like a bond on, he's messing with my teeth. It's like all glued up, which is what I have today. But at that moment, I was like, you know what? I've been putting this off long enough. This this manual labor stuff, me bouncing my face off of forklifts, picking, I gotta, I gotta find something else to do. So that was like, you know, I'm taking the LSAT. Like whenever the next time the LSAT comes around, taking it. So that's that's my that's my glorious path to becoming a trial lawyer. All right. See, I see but for the blues of the teeth, who knows? You might have thought that being a picker that's driver for me. Was, was for you. Maybe so. So you go to school, you graduate, you ditch the professorship, you graduate from law school from Case Western, and then tell us about your journey from that, getting your bar card to, you know, like where was your first job and how'd you get to where you are today? Yeah, so my first job, I actually started as a clerk. And it's a great, great law firm in Ohio, very prestigious trial law firm. So, you know, law school, I, I did well, top 10%. So they really funnel you into corporate law, big corporate law, it pays the best, it helps the rankings. It's kind of the prestigious thing to do. So I go and I interview at Jones Day. This is the summer after my second year. And I'm meeting with a big products liability partner. Now, I don't know anything about personal injury law other than what I learned in torts, okay? So I'm sitting there and I don't know what, I'm talking to this guy. He's obviously a big, he's a big shot, right? He's like the head of their products liability division at Jones Day, right? So I'm sitting there and I can't really think of anything to say. So I just ask him, I go, hey, what, what are you most proud of as a lawyer? I don't know why I came up with that question, but he looks at me, he thinks about it for a second, and he starts talking about this, this MDL, this multi-district litigation he had. And it was for some kind of faulty hip that somebody was putting in. I don't know if it's striker or something else. But he's telling me how these hips, they failed, right? These hip implants. They totally failed. They busted. They were a garbage product. And he tells me how he and his underlings were able to get that dismissed, you know, on some kind of legal technicality issues on a motion to dismiss or summary judgment or something like that. They were able to get that all dismissed and saved his clients, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. And I'm sitting there looking at him going, that's your legacy? You just left a bunch of poor old people like sitting around not being able to you know, walk, get new hips, just in a bucket of pain, just laying around. That's like, that's your claim to fame. You know, I obviously didn't say that, but I was like, no, this, this, I can't do this shit. There's no way that this is what I'm going to do. I mean, if I'm selling out, it's going to be for a hell of a lot more than whatever this guy makes. So... <laughs> So I leave there and I'm kind of like, what am I going to do? So I talked to one of the people at the law, the uh, law school who's like, hey, I know this great firm, you know, Spangenberg, Shibley and Liber. Um, go apply there for to be a clerk. You'll learn great stuff. Now, I didn't I didn't know who these people were. Right. I thought they, I mean, I, I was like, oh, person or angel. They must not be very good. They're, seriously, this is where I was coming out of law school because you're taught that. Right. You're taught like, oh, personal injury lawyers. They're not any good at being lawyers. So I went there and, and I just I loved what I was doing. And so, you know, I started doing a lot of civil rights stuff, a lot of motion practice, doing all the research. Yeah, I'm living at that office. I mean, you know, you're going to school during the day. I'm like spending the night there, but I'm not telling anybody really. I'm like, no, I'm only working, you know, 20 hours a week, you know, but I'm getting like so much done. They're like, man, this guy's so efficient. I mean, this guy's incredible. <laughs> so, so then they offer me a job and I just stay there. And that's where I stayed like my first five years. And because I had already worked there and had been working on cases and kind of proven myself, once I became, you know, a lawyer and got my bar card, I just wrote it out. And they were like, all right, stay on these cases, keep going. And so I started trying cases there my first year, uh, which is pretty, pretty incredible. I mean, I had, there were a lot of shit cases in the office because we had one lawyer who was really nice and would take up cases for terrible business decisions because he was a nice guy, but then nobody wanted to work on them. So they would just like <laughs> gather dust. So I would just run around and be like, start grabbing those cases and be like, hey, can I work on this case? And I was like, yeah, great, because otherwise, you know, we're gonna, just going to end up dismissing it or something. So I would run around and work on these cases. 
that's how I ended up trying cases, not having a clue what I was doing the first couple of years. And then they also let me try with them large cases. So in addition to those garbage cases, you know, I was second chairing and, and their second chair was 50%. It wasn't second chair, you sit on the sidelines, you observe a trial. I mean, second chair was, okay, you know, there, we got three experts, you put on these three, we'll put on, I'll put on these three, you cross these experts, I'll cross these experts. So, I mean, I remember my second and third year, I'm crossing like, you know, top vascular surgeons in the country. I'm scared to death getting up there. I don't really know what I'm doing, but you figure it out as you go. So that's kind of my journey. So you were, you were at this law firm, Spangler, and they gave you cases to try. And how many years did you spend there? So I was there for five years. And then I had a really nice verdict in a nursing home case. And nursing home cases have always been very undervalued in Ohio, very undervalued in my old law firm. It was, it was basically they treated them like a PI case, but the person was old, right? They didn't have any money. They didn't have any economic damages. They had a year or two left to live, if that. Let's settle it for $100,000, $200,000 if it's a great case. So I ended up taking on a case, me and an associate. I actually came on the case kind of late to try it. And so what was the case about? Give us the thumbnail, man. Don't tell us. I'll give you, yeah. So here's the, here's the Cliff's Notes version of it. This is like a 78-year-old woman who'd had a couple of strokes. She was a two-person assist. So two people needed to roll her in and out of bed. One person rolled her right out the other side of the bed breaks her hip. She ends up dying about two months later. Medical examiner confirms, hey, she broke her hip. That caused the decline. She died from that. So I get into the case and I start digging into it. And I realized like a year before, the exact same thing happened. One person rolled her out of bed. That's why they had the two-person order. She was trapped underneath like a end table for like an hour when that happened. I was like, this is pretty, this is pretty disturbing, man. So the partners, though, were like, hey, settle this case. As soon as they get to $250,000, you settle this case. And I was like, I'm not doing that. So we start getting close to trial, and they offer $250,000. And I was just like, no. And it's not my money. I'm not playing with my money at this point, right? So they're like, I'm like, no. And defense offers more money as we're getting into trial now, opening statement and stuff. And I'm like, no. Keep offering more money. No. So I'm, I'm texting my partners or the partners at the time. They're like, hey, they offered a million dollars. And they're like, are you taking it? I was like, no. And they're like, what? They're like, you better win. I was like, we'll see what happens. So I keep going with it. <laughs> you better win. At this point, I'm like, at this you point, I'm punk? Kind of, yeah, that's exactly right. Exactly. You got momentum, man. You haven't been punched in the face too many times. You're like, I believe. I'm like, I can walk on water. That's right. So we end up getting in front of the jury. We don't know what they're going to do. And they end up hitting it with $5 million. And I was like, oh, there's something to these cases. It's not just the money. I believe in these cases, right? These are This is corporate total corporate malfeasance. It is just, you know, a race to the bottom. How do we have the worst nursing home, maximize our profits, but keep people coming in and making it look good. So I got really invested in these cases, really invested in the families like we all do and realized that, look, not just is there a lot of money to be made here, but we are totally undervaluing these cases as a profession. I don't want to be a part of that. And if I stay at this firm, and it's no, no knock to that firm, it's just the way things go, that's going to continue and I had had enough. And so I jumped ship, started my firm February 2017, became exclusively nursing home. And that is all I've done ever since. Does your firm do anything else besides nursing home? No, that is the only thing we do. That is it. Wow. We'll do some assisted living cases, but that's just kind of nursing home light, basically. Yeah, not real nursing home stuff. Right. 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 All right. <laughs> well, that's a fascinating $5 million verdict. And how many years have you been in practice when you got that $5 million verdict? Five years. But I'd already at that point had, you know, a number of kind of that mixed five chair or first chair, second chair 
structure where I, you know, we had had me and my partners together, five, six, seven million dollar verdicts at that point. So that was not surprising. I should say that five million dollars. It was just the first time I had done it kind of on my own in a nursing home case. How did you uh, determine, like when you asked the jury, did you ask them for five million dollars? What did you ask them for in your closing? For that set of damages, how'd you come up with that number? So it was $10 million and was the ask. And they came up with $5 million, which was exactly the amount that we were able to show to the jury that basically they were understaffing the facility. And I won't get into the technical weeds, but there is a way to show what they're charging Medicare for the amount of care that's needed to provide and being given across the facility. They're actually hiring out for staff. And there was a gap of $5 million. That's basically what they had taken, stolen from all of their customers, not just my client, but everybody. And frankly, these are Medicare and Medicaid patients. So from us as taxpayers, that's the amount that they had taken. So that's the amount that they assigned for damages there. I don't think that was any kind of a coincidence at all. So I think in these cases, as I tell everybody who will listen, So much about the damages is based on the aggravating conduct of the nursing home itself, far less than the individual person who dies who's 80, 90. I mean, I'm going to trial for a 97-year-old here in two months. That's They've long outlived their life expectancy at that point. So it's really about the conduct here when it comes to damages. More, yeah, really probably more so than any other of these cases, you know, that I've talked to people about. So let me switch gears here for a second, Mike. So you're, you're pretty, what are you, 40, 41? How old are you? I'm, I'm 41 now, as of September. Four, as of September. So September what? What's your birthday? Just in case people want to write it down for next year to send you a card. September 12th. I'm September 8th, buddy. So it's typically people born in September are higher performers. That's what I've that's always what thought. The, yeah. that's, what, that's what I always told myself. Born in September, I'm yeah. destined for success. I can't avoid it. I can't avoid I'm it. I'm sure the research bears that all out. Absolutely. I read this book, Outliers, and it says, you know, more successful people are born in September than any other month. I just made that up. Another story I tell myself. So you're on your way to being, I had a lot of success. And typically people that have a lot of success get there from associating with people that have a lot of success too. You know, when you start to get to the higher level in a profession, it's weird. The people at a high level profession gravitate together. And so, you know, you've become a pretty great lawyer at a young age and I know a lot of lawyers and stuff that are at a high level. So if you look back at this and you think about, okay, what qualities do these people that have got to the higher levels, you know, in this trial lawyering world, you know, what qualities do they have in common? And so that's my question for you is what, what qualities, what common denominators have you seen at people at the top in our profession? So a few of them, the, and I, I don't know why this is, but the better the trial lawyer, the more successful they are. First of all, the more giving they are of their time and of their strategy. They don't have a scarcity mentality. When I meet a lot of lawyers who are not at the pinnacle, it's very scarcity mentality. I don't want to help this lawyer. If I help this lawyer, they're going to do what I do. They're going to, they're going to get good results. They're going to take my clients. When you go and meet, you know, any of these, what I always thought and still think kind of larger than life people, you know, the Keith Mitnicks, the Joe Freeds, the whoever you want to bring up, they are so giving of their strategy, what they do, their time. They are not worried about other people taking trucking cases or other big cases or anything like that. So that's the first thing I notice. Number one, two is that they are, for the most part, completely and totally authentic. And what I mean by that is not not what you read in books or, or you hear some people say on whatever and they say, oh, be authentic. 
I hear that all the time. I heard it all week. I was at OAJ, which is Ohio Association for Justice. A lot of great speakers, but I heard a lot about like, be authentic, be authentic, be authentic. And then you kind of like at the same token, you hear the same kind of people saying, but also, you know, make sure that you dress a certain way in front of the jury. Don't don't wear expensive clothes. Don't drive fancy cars. Don't do this. Don't do that. And it's like, well, wait, that's there's there's a like a something wrong here. Right. Be authentic, but also be somebody totally different in front of the jury. Right. And what I realized, the more I spend time with people or read their books or see them on TV or podcasts or anything else, those people who are really successful are genuinely themselves. Whatever they are in real life, that is the way that they are in front of a jury. Now, things are polished. The performance is differently. Obviously, trial has a lot of theater aspects to it, your delivery, but they are themselves. They look like themselves. They dress like themselves. They talk like themselves. They are themselves. You know, people with long hair, they're not cutting their hair to look different in front of a jury. They are themselves. So I would they're, say that's- They're, put, that's they're the, putting in a man bun. You know what I mean though? Yeah, like you you know your audience, okay? So you're not gonna show up, you know, exactly the same. You're not gonna show up in a Van Halen t-shirt or something, okay? But you're gonna be yourself. You're gonna talk like yourself. You're not trying to be somebody else. So I, I would say that's number two. Let me just talk about that for one moment though, like the authenticity, because- that's all you hear all the time. I spent 12 years at the trial lawyers college. Be authentic. Be authentic. To me, that's lip service. That's like crap advice. It's garbage advice because it's easy to be authentic when you're super successful and everybody loves you and, you know, you just chill it. But the journey there, because I truly believe I've been studying this a while and I am by no means a great trial lawyer that anybody would recognize. Now, my goal is to become that great trial lawyer that, you know, people recognize. That's my journey. That's my mission. And and everything I'm doing in the interim, which is, you know, you know, getting to meet great lawyers like yourself or the Keith Mitnicks and the Brian Panish, the Joe Freeds and, and study their stuff. I'm in my own little process of, you know, self-mentoring or getting other people to share their, their wisdom with me. And, you know, I do a lot of training and stuff of other lawyers on the physicality of connection in the presentation of trial. And I think learned is that authenticity is a result of really hard work to master whatever you're doing because you because you can't be authentic if you're nervous. And people say, well, you're authentically nervous. Well, that's because you're insecure. People don't get nervous unless they're insecure. Insecurity is fear. And you can't be authentic if you're living in fear. And, mm -hmm. you know, the only way that I know out of that is to train, is to study so that you, you know your materials, so you're confident in your materials, but you also have to train the physicality so that knowing the materials and, and knowing the story, having the ability to get up and tell that story so that people are listening and are engaged in it and are interested. Because you could tell when somebody's interested in you. Then that breeds authenticity, is the calmness of preparation. And, you know, my friend, his name's Shemek. He's a professional pistol comp competitor. And so he talks about competition having three elements or performance having three spheres. There's a conscious mind where that's what we're thinking. Okay, that's the strategy. This is the voir dire I'm gonna use. This is some structure in my opening. This is the visual I'm gonna use. But then there's the unconscious mind, which is, you know, the skills. The skills of performance, the hand movements, the facial expressions, the eye contact, you're controlling your voice, all these things that you do, because it is theater. It is a presentation. And then finally, the self-image, which is a combination of the first two being at a high level, but also getting results where, where it's like, as you know, it's like you start getting results and people, oh, yeah. people like me, I like them. Relax. I'm confident. It's a big confidence game, right? So raising your, you know, confidence is where authenticity comes from. Because like, again, 
my 12 years at the Trial Lawyers College. We did a lot of stuff there, but none of it really had a lot to do with trial. It had mostly to do with becoming a better yeah. person, finding yourself, and that's all great, but you can find yourself and everything, stand up and stand up for jury and still be scared shitless. I differ from a lot of people because a lot of folks you know, think that, oh, if you're really scared and nervous, that that's authentic, that works. Well, I don't think so because people don't follow people who are insecure. And as a trial lawyer, you're the leader. And if you're all nervous and, and plus, if you're insecure, Except you're thinking, you know, because of the pressure. And so, you know, authentic, authentic. Yes, we got to be authentic. But authenticity is a result of work, like all the work you do in preparation. You know, those weeks and months of preparation, that leads to certainty and calmness so you could be authentic. And, you know, standing up and... Absolutely. And I think one other thing that, that gets a lot of lawyers, you know, plaintiff's lawyers, and you know this, a lot of plaintiff's lawyers will call themselves trial lawyers. They don't actually try cases. Or if they do, it is years apart. And that's a scary thing to be in. And I think what gets them in trouble is they have this idea. They went to law school. They work on the plaintiff's side. They care about their clients, all those things. Therefore, they'll be a good trial lawyer. And none of that, what you're doing right now, has anything to do with the skill set of what trial is once you're up, right? Trial, when you're up there, you know, a lot of what I do in terms of my presentation is I go to sales and marketing conferences. I listen to a lot of those people. It is a presentation. You did not go to law school because you were such an amazing public speaker that people wanted to listen to you or you were so persuasive. You went for whatever reason you went. Maybe you're just really smart or maybe you loved the law or you wanted to or whatever else. But law school doesn't train you to do that stuff. It makes it worse. Your first year at law school makes you strange and weird and neurotic and just talking in these big, weird words that no one gives a shit about. And you look like a pompous asshole to people when you say them. That skill set, you got to develop that one way or another, you know, and that's that's either being in trial and trial and error and, and falling on your face, which I did a lot, which is a stupid way to do it when you can go to places and learn from people who are better than you have already done that. OK, I went this I went the kind of grind it out dumb route, you know, only to find out like, hey, this really cool thing that I think I invented. Yeah, everybody who's good already did that. They've been doing that for 10, 15 years. Right. You could have just learned it from them. But I think learning that skill set and not somehow thinking that you being a good lawyer makes you a good trial lawyer. Those are two very different things. And I don't know if you agree with me or not. It's funny because like so many of the people that I work with and train, they're really good lawyers. They've got like great results and they're making a great life for themselves. And so I always think to myself, you got these results with this current skill set of presentation and connection. Once you start actually working on that. So everything you get up in that front of that jury is deliberate. Your facial expression is like, you know, when you say good morning, you're controlling that face. So you have a warm face as you make eye contact with all of them for just a moment. Like that's a skill or that, you know, when you say, you know, as we've all just heard in your hand kind of is inclusive movement to everybody. All of this is controlled and all of it has a result and an effect. That's then it starts to race a new level because every time you do a trial, you are deliberately working on skills. And, you know, it's like my friend that just finished the trial, got a great result, but he's like, I was really insecure with my cross. I'm like, well, because it was an expert, right? And that's especially as a younger, he's only been practicing law a couple of years, but he was doing it with a more senior lawyer. And I'm like, well, what'd you do to prepare? He's like, well, I wrote out all my questions. I'm like, well, did the guy you're trying with, did he play the witness? Did you practice it? And, you know, a friend of a couple of your other people at your office so you could see what it was like and with the dynamic of, you know, connecting with the, you know, the cross and how it's going to affect the jury and how you can use your visuals and, you know, and, and make sure see your rhythm, check out your, your word choice and, you know, the presentations and everything's like, no, I'm like, well, that's what you need to be doing. If you want to be getting to the top, if, you know, you could, your career could slowly on this 
you know, slope should get better if you have somebody mentoring you and you're doing trials, but it could be like, boom, boom. If everything you're doing delivered, everything's prepared. You're doing that cross, not just once, maybe twice, or, you know, like, you know, before you go to trial, because, you know, people do focus groups and most people do focus groups. It's just like shucking and jiving up there, testing out ideas. They're not really like trial ready, prepared, but, you know, I think the most valuable focus groups before trial, right before trials, it's no longer time to think of your theme and, whatever, like what's the fact? It's like, okay, do your voir dire for two hours in front of a focus jury. Do your opening for 45 minutes. Put your plaintiff up there. Videotape it. And video it and, and do a direct, right, do a direct and cross of that plaintiff. Videotape it, play it back, have somebody coach you and give you their insights that knows more about connection than you do. Then refine it, make the corrections on, on all aspects of it, whether you know, you're know you not looking at your visuals, you're using them, or you know, you're know missing opportunities to follow up and loop jurors together or whatever it is, or helping your client get comfortable in front of exposing their vulnerabilities and their emotional state in front of strangers. That's not easy for a lot of people. But you do that once, you know, fix, you know, make the corrections, do it again. And then a third time, now you are really ready with your best performance. Because, you know, the biggest improvements happen between the first and second time. But then that way it's like patterns. The patterns are built into your mind. Boom, boom, boom. Now you're prepared. Now you're relaxed. Now you can be authentic. But people don't, yeah, you know, it's crazy how little people prepare or, you know, for the actual. Yes, I've heard theater people say this many times. You perform like you practice. And a lot of people go into trial without ever having practice. I grew up playing football. You do not sit around and look at X's and O's on a board all day long and think about, oh, here's all the plays I'm going to run and never actually run the plays before you get to the game and go, well, fuck, I don't know why this didn't work out, right? I never went against a defense before. I never actually, you know, it makes perfect sense. And then mock trials, I think, are huge for a couple of reasons. One, for me, I have a tendency to procrastinate, okay? I just do. But if <laughs> really? I have mock trials... Right. And I have mock trials coming up and I got to give an opening. I'm not going to give a shit opening. I'm just not. Right. So I'm going to have my opening done. I'm going to have my, my jury selection done. It's not what I'm going to use at trial. Maybe I'm going to refine it and watch myself and see how it goes and get all the feedback. Same thing with my clients. Right. I got to get my directs done. I put my clients up at mock trials. I make them sit back and go through video by video, frame by frame, how they're moving and getting nervous, how they're stammering, how on cross they're just running wild, saying nonsense. And they look like they're going to puke. They thought they did really well. And then you put that in front of them and they're like, please just turn, turn this off. I said, no, we're not going to turn it off. We're going to go through it, right? Because you're going to be good, right? You got a story to tell and it's a good story and we're going to make it come off that way. I think that preparation doesn't happen for a lot of lawyers. Their jury selection, just, just to tag on to this a little bit, I think there's a lot of lawyers out there. A lot of lawyers don't do anything, but a lot of lawyers do. They read every book, right? Which is great. You can learn a ton of stuff from the book and you can have an opening where all the words are right, right? All the, you got everything right, the slides right. You can have a jury selection where you got, okay, I'm gonna hit all the notes. This is what this, this is what Keith Mitnick does. This is what Joe Freed does. This is what, you know, this person does and, and Nick Rowley does this. And you go up there and you do it and you fall flat on your face because 90% of what you're doing up there is getting that connection, right? It's not necessarily the words you say, it's getting them to feel comfortable with you immediately. That's it. And I've always thought that people, our biggest fear as people is being rejected, right? We are social animals. We don't want to be rejected. We don't want to kick the kicked out of the group. You will die, right? Evolutionarily, you will die if you're not part of the group. That's our fear. We all have fears as trial lawyers, right? A lot of times we call it stress. I'm stressed. No, you're afraid. You're afraid of something. You're not stressed. You're afraid of something. Same thing with the jury, right? The jury 
I believe, just like anybody else, is afraid of being rejected, right? They initially don't know what this is, what they're doing is a cattle call where they're just pushed around. They're in this room and that room. Now they're in this cold, stale room. They heard this judge just rattle off all these long terms. And they're probably sitting there really afraid that if they open their mouth, they're going to get rejected in front of this group and they're going to get shut down. And so I think, you know, the biggest thing you can do is bring them in that welcoming environment. It's us. I genuinely care what you have to say. I don't care what it is you say. I'm genuinely interested in you as a person and you have to genuinely be interested in them as a person. It's not a fraud, <laughs> right? It's not like a pretend because people will see right through that, right? You're just a, you're just a hack at that point, right? You're a, you're a snake oil salesman. But when you're genuinely interested in them, they feel that and they want to share stuff with you and they want to be open with you and they like you and they say, Dan, look, Dan is like, look how easy going he is. He actually cares what I have to say. And I, I, I rambled on in this dumb story, but Dan said, Hey, he said, thank you. And and he, he added to it. And then he asked this other person if they agreed with this great thing I had to say. And I feel good about this. And then what happens the next, you know, the, the defense lawyer gets up and it's just that stale, archaic, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and it, and it looks like, what can I do to get you off the jury? Right. What can I get you to? And, and you have that. It's just like, well, wait, I trusted Dan. Dan, Dan made me feel like he wanted me here. Right. Yeah. He asked me questions about bias and all those things. But I get that now. He told me what that is. It's unconscious and it's not it's not a bad thing. And I'm with him. This person over here, though, is barking at me, you know, trying to get me off the jury. And I, I don't trust that person. Right. So I think getting them into that feeling of welcoming and not being rejected, this, the earlier you can do that and do that for body language, the way you talk and genuinely giving a shit about what they have to say. I think you can basically, I don't want to say you win or lose your case there, but you got a huge advantage going forward. Clarence Darrow said, once the jury's selected, the trial's over. So yeah, you do. I, I think most people think you win or lose your case in jury selection. Because if you don't have, it matter what story you're telling. And if the jury likes you, again, I said to Joe Freed, I said, it doesn't matter what story you tell if nobody's listening. And he said, Dad, the inverse is true also. If you're connected, it doesn't matter what story you're telling because the jury is going to find a way to help you win because they want you to win. They're cheering for that's you. exactly right. And, and that's what we need in the courtroom is people cheering for us. And the first thing you mentioned too, the abundance mentality, totally agree. It's like the people with the abundance mentality, they're always, because they're always teaching and they're teaching good stuff. They're not just out there sharing and teaching so they could just give you a few nuggets to show you how great they are so you can bring them to your case. It's like, sure, every great trial lawyer I know, they want to work on big cases, okay? And most of the time, most people that have good cases that have no experience or have never gotten a verdict, they're better off for themselves and for their clients to team up with somebody who's gotten those big results, who's going to actually mentor them and show them the way. So that way it's, you know, and once you know the way, then you can walk that you can walk that path on your own. But until you do, you know, you need people to show you the way. But these guys like the Freeds and the Mitniks and the Rallies and the Panches, they are trying to help you so that you can do it. But if you can't, if you're, you know, if you still have the fear, if you haven't got to the point where you're like, it's your eight-figure case, you're like, I'm an eight-figure guy. If you still look in the mirror, you see a six-figure guy or girl, you should have that collaborative effort. But they do really share. And I think COVID was really so great for that. Because, you know, people Huge. were isolated and need a community and the sharing and teaching. I hope that it's competitive. That's why, like, you know, at my events, I don't have one lecture track. I have four, at least four and at least seven workshop tracks. 
because I want people to be competitive. I want these lawyers to be competing for the for the audience. They should. And that when, it, when somebody goes and picks somebody to listen to, like when you're in Huntington Beach and somebody comes to listen to you, instead of the Keith Mitnicks or the Brian Panishes, the Nick Rallies, they really want to be with you. Whether it's 10 people or 100 people, those people want to be with you. And whatever message that you have to share, well, that's more burden on you now. It's not like you were the only one there that they had to listen to you. And it's much better too, because the audience is much more engaged. I'd rather have 20 people engaged when I'm speaking, you know, as a speaker, than 180 of them are on their laptops. And you can clearly see that they're surfing the web and answering emails and don't give a rat's ass up what you're talking about. Like who wants those people in your audience? Like go outside and do an email. You're killing my vibe. You're killing my, it's like a bunch of jurors that just don't. I was at a conference this week and I'm, I'm watching this person there and I'm in the front, you know, because I want to interact and I, I want to be part of it. And it, it, he's putting on a good, I mean, it's good. He's got some useful stuff here, right? I mean, this is good stuff. And I look behind me and everybody's on their laptop. Just clicking away, you know, and I'm and I think, well, you're obviously just here to get some credits or maybe some FaceTime or something like that with colleagues. But like, first of all, I, it's it's totally disrespectful to the person who's up there. I would never do that because I'm imagining <laughs> myself up there and he, he's putting on a good performance looking at a bunch of top of people's heads. You know what I mean? Which is so it's such a you know, he's getting rejected. Going back to rejected. Everybody's rejected this guy, you know, but so, yeah, they're not and you're not getting anything out of it. And then. Just to digress a little bit, the other thing, the final thing I would say about great lawyers that I've realized is they're no different than any great competitors in any realm of business or sports or anything like that, which is they're never satisfied. There's always something they could have done better, whatever the results, and they're judging themselves based on themselves. And I think that goes to the abundance mentality, Mm -hmm. too. But, you know, we've all had eight figure verdicts where you look back and go, man, I could have done this thing differently or I could have done that thing differently or I need to improve on this thing. Right. You're not sitting around going, oh, man, I'm great. I don't need to learn anymore. And I think that's a huge thing with just successful people in general, which is their measuring stick is their best self. It's not what somebody else in the community did or, oh, I got a bigger verdict than that guy or that guy got a bigger verdict than me. It's, It's what is the best possible thing I can be. And you hear Michael Jordan talk about that all the time. If you ever watch, you know, The Last Dance. I mean, that's the whole thing. He doesn't, he's not measuring himself against other people. It's what is the best possible thing he could be. And it's because he is the best at that point. There is no other measuring stick. And I think that's when you look at these great lawyers, a bunch of whom you just mentioned, whether they say it or not, I know that's how they're, they're gauging themselves. Uh, they're not comparing themselves with other people. They're, they're absolutely comparing themselves with what is their greatest self. And I don't care who these people are. I don't care if they got a $100 million verdict. There's still something that they could do better. And they spend the time afterward pondering they could do better instead of just resting on their laurels. And I don't know if you've experienced that yourself, but that that seems to be front and center with a lot of these people. No, that's a, uh, I, I have seen it. And, you know, I was talking to Panish a bit about stuff and he's like, Ambrose, you know, with your conferences and stuff, he's like, he's like, you're really only competing with yourself because, you know, I thought about that a lot too. Cause like every time I do a conference, like I just did one in New York, now I'm going back to Huntington Beach, then I'm going to Vegas. It's like, every time I do it, I feel like I have to like, it has to be a better event. It has to be more impactful. It has to be more fun. It has to be, you know, the food has to be better. Everything has to improve because I feel I have such a commitment to the people who do come to my conferences that they've given me their time and invested their money and their time to, because they want something. This is not, they're not just showing up because they're my friends. They want something. They want to right. be better trial lawyers. They want to improve I think it's mostly for themselves and they can say it about the clients, but we all want to get better for ourselves because we have egos and, and we want those material things. We all, I think, want to be rich. 
But still, the point is, even if it's for themselves, you know, that's why they're there. You know, it all starts with me and I or whatever, you know, so they're there. They want to get better for themselves. They want to have a great time because this is a tough ass job. It's stressful. It's lonely. So you get together. You got colleagues and friends and, you know, people see you. It's so great when people see you and their faces light up with like Mike or Dan or, you know, and it's like that's what it's about. And then creating those networks, get the community, those friends. So that way when people show up, there's like when you're at a conference, you got 50 people that you know and you're friends with that you haven't seen in a while, that's an awesome thing, right? Because it's just fun. And, you know, so I think about these things constantly and, and how to, you know, be, you know, innovative and like, you know, even like somebody like, like for you, like speaking at, you know, Huntington Beach, I'm thinking like, okay, well, you really, really focused on this trial stuff and think about like, give it like an hour, you know, how do you, you know, I'm voir dire, an hour on how do you do your opening hour on, you know, what's your strategy on closing? Like an hour on what's your strategy on direct? How do you prepare your, your direct of your clients, directs of your before and after witnesses, directs of your experts? There's a lot of preparation. Crosses. How do you prepare your client for cross? How do you prepare your before and after witnesses for cross? How do you prepare your crosses for the defense? There's so much strategy and so much stuff that has to be put together to really teach. And so I'm always thinking, okay, how do we get a better, find new people like you? You and I have never met before this, you know, and, you know, found each other because Matt Nakajima or, that's who I was on a prep session with right before we got on here. <laughs> he's such a great guy, but I love he's doing a, a case analysis in a few days with a Mike Carp out of Wisconsin. And they met at TLU in 2021 and they worked on the, you know, they brainstormed, they worked on this case with uh, Kyle out of Missouri. I can't remember his last name, but they worked, they all worked on this case together in a small group. And now they went and got this three and a half million dollar verdict on a $50,000 offer. Like to me, this is the exciting thing of, of collaboration and mentoring and people helping each other. So, oh yeah, and it's, it's synergistic. I mean, you know, you, you I do things differently than you know everybody takes from other people. We do right. We plagiarize. It's not bad. We all do it. But then you have your own spin. You know, it works for you. Your your demeanor is different. The way you deliver things is different. You tweak it a little bit, and the more you see and rub elbows with people like that, the better you get, right? Because Nick Rowley's style is, I love Nick Rowley. I think he's amazing. I, I, I watch him. He's incredible. But the stuff he does, I cannot do without trying, pretending to be him, right? We could not be more different in our delivery, the way we speak, <laughs> the way we act. He, you know, we're, we just are. I'm never going to be him. And I, I did that early in my career. I would try to be somebody else. And, it, you know, you think it's great. You do it by yourself. You don't practice it. You get in front of a jury and say, wah, wah, wah. You know what I mean? It just doesn't go anywhere. So I think learning how people tweak things a little bit, take from somebody else and make it their own. And that's that's kind of what I mean, that authenticity. And that is confidence. And that is skill. And that is having tried it in front of other people. What do they always say, right? The old cliche, you are the five people you spend the most time with, Right. And I know a lot of lawyers who just spend time with people in their office, and there's a reason that they're never getting better than the other people in their office, right? <laughs> Nobody's pushing them. And I'm going to go back to sports because I'm kind of dumb, and that's what I relate to. Is you always and, and you've been hit in the head a few times, both with a helmet, without a helmet, lost some oh, teeth. The CTE is is for sure. I'm sure going to going to make its appearance here at some point. But you know, 
the best wide receiver wants to go against the best cornerback every day in practice, right? Because that's what makes them better. That's who they want to spend time with. They don't want to just go beat up on whatever third string, screen, you know, third string bozo happens to be there, right? So you're always spending time learning from those people, getting in front of those people. If it's a workshop, they're going to get you off your feet, put you in front of people. They're going to challenge you. I think people that are successful want that, want to be in their company and I mean, I think obviously Trialer University does all of that. I mean, even if you don't want to, I think it puts you in that situation where you have to. Where you have to, always getting better. So what do you, uh, speaking of always getting better, Mike, what are you doing on a regular basis to improve your craft? You know, I have used to have, actually, it's, I don't anymore, but I had such a fear of public speaking, you wouldn't believe it. I mean, I did not, in college, I mean, I, I didn't want to raise my hand. I was terrified if somebody called on me. That was not me in any stretch of the world. I mean, in, in law school, I mean, I, I was like having a panic attack that somebody would call on me. So the idea of standing in front of a group of people that, you know, basically my client's livelihood and frankly, my livelihood depends on is, is totally, you know, that is not a thing that I could have ever imagined doing. But so learning how to do that, going back to the skill set, getting over the fear of doing that, that is probably the biggest thing that I have done during the course of my career to get better and continually improve. And a lot of what we do, and, and I don't wanna, I mean, everybody who tries cases knows this, but I don't wanna undermine what we do, but it is entertainment. What we do has a level of entertainment. I mean, you go look at these old courthouses and they have, you know, some of these have multiple rows, right? I mean, they got tiers, they've got like a mezzanine. That's what people did before TV and that kind of stuff. They would go and watch Clarence Darrow. That was, a, it was a show, it was entertainment. So I don't mean that you make it sticky or anything like that, but you have to be able to try a case in a way that keeps people engaged. It, it has to, I think, mirror in some ways their expectations. I mean, they watch Law & Order. They, they, you know, they see how things go. Things move quickly. they learning how to present. You know, like I think I said before, you know, I do a lot of sales and marketing kind of conferences. Why? Because part of what we do is sales, right? We are always selling ourselves. We're selling our case, not in a manipulative way. We're selling a concept to the jury, right, of how they're going to feel when they find for our client, right, how they're going to feel when they did the right thing, how they're going to feel when a member of our community is represented, they get full justice, their, their life, the life of a father, a grandfather, a brother, a sister, whoever it is, is worth millions and millions of dollars as the community, they walk out of there feeling that way. But that's what we're selling them is, is that feeling. It's a concept. You don't, just like you always hear, if you go to these conferences, you don't sell a product, right? You sell a concept, you sell a feeling, you sell a problem that you're solving. So I think that is probably the biggest thing that has helped me with my craft that I have to continue to work on is, is that performance aspect of it. You know, I first got licensed to practice law a long time ago. I literally stuttered for the first six months in court. I was so insecure, so nervous. And I had this buddy of mine, we're having lunch. And I'm like, I mean, I'm months into this perfume already. And I'm, and I'm still like freaked out. And, you know, the judges aren't helping any. Like, I remember the first time I'm going to do something on the record. Don't have the forms right. The judge is like, Mr. Ambrose, you're unprepared. So why don't you have a seat and figure out what you're doing. And then you let my clerk know when you feel you're ready to put this on the record. I'm like, Okay. And so, you know, I mean, it's like, but even like today, like presenting, because it's such a skill, you know, like so many lawyers get up and present in, other, in front of other lawyers. They think it's the same thing presenting to a jury and it's so different. And, and that's a whole different skill. 
right? And you get too caught up in like the information of the facts, you lose all your connection. There has to be a balance of like, mostly about the connection because when you're connected to your audience and then they're like, it's like infotainment. It's like, obviously it has to have information and you're teaching, but if they ain't interested, they're not listening, so they're not learning. So, you know, it's so much more like, it's like just be like a stand-up comedian. You gotta have your material in form in your head, but it's about, you know, what audience is showing up today, who's there, you know, who am I gonna get some connection with, you know, start riffing with, in the context of the frames that I have set already for my performance. So, you know, it's just gotta constantly work on that performance. And you only get that by doing it. And, and what do they say? The repetition is the mother of skill or mother of learning, whatever. You have to do it, right? Because trial moves so fast when you first start. I mean, it, it feels like everything is happening in lightning speed. The more you do it, though, it slows down, right? It slows down, right? Because you've been there. You know how to adapt. You know what it's like when this thing doesn't go quite right. Or your witness says something that you completely did not expect. Or whatever happened. Like, everything slows down. And that only comes from doing it and and having as you come you got a plan a and a plan b and a plan c and you kind of have this not a bag of tricks but you've been through it before you're okay with it it's so easy to adapt and when i say repetition i don't mean you do the same thing over and over again right we know lawyers defense lawyers in particular they get out the same dusty jury selection every time right doesn't matter what the case you've tried cases against them before you know exactly what their opening statement is going to be you know exactly what their closing are so those people, you know, they'll say like, oh, I tried 100 of these cases. No, you've tried one case 100 times, right? You have not tried 100 cases. You've tried one case and you did it 100 times. That's totally different. So when I say repetition is a mother skill, I mean exactly what you were talking about earlier, training, right? Doing it in front of people, breaking it down, knowing your audience and your audience is different in every case, right? The way you present things is going to be different in every case. The order of witnesses, maybe your jury selection is going to be different, right? All of that, though, knowing right how you present certain things, certain images, visual, all that's going to be different based on your case, based on that infotainment, based on hooking people in. They want to hear more, right? They want the story to keep going, right? Oh, tell me more about that. Like, they want to be following along. All of that happens, though, I think, from repetition. And I mean, literally going in, practicing, learning, getting over your fears. And the only way I got over my fears is doing it. No other way that I did it, right? I mean, it's like immersion therapy. You just do it, right? I remember going back to your story. I was in the criminal clinic. I'd never been in front of anybody. I don't even know why I signed up for the criminal clinic. I don't even think I was, knew I was going to be in court. I had a DUI case, and I'm in front of this, this judge. who's a, this, She's probably been a muni court judge for 30 years, and she is not a friendly person. And she is not friendly to a law school. You know, some people go like, oh, he's a law school student. I'll take him under my wing. That was not her. She's like, I'm going to show him the ropes. Right? I'm going to show him how this goes. And I remember she's just challenging me and I'm behind this podium. I mean, I'm, I'm like hiding behind this podium, right? And my legs are so locked, my knees are so locked that I almost passed out. And I'm not joking, I almost passed out by the time she was done talking to me. So that's where I started, okay, was that person, but just doing it, right? And the reason I had to do it is I went to this firm where we tried cases, my livelihood depended on it. I liked my clients, I had to do it. I had to stand up and do it. I got a wife at this point. I got to put food on the table. I'm not going to just bail on it. And you do it and you're terrified. And then you do it some more and you do it some more and you do it some more. And then eventually you get to a point where, you know, my last trial, and this is the first time I've ever done this, but my last trial, I came into the trial on the Friday morning. We started trial on Monday. That's when I got into the case. Okay. So that was learning the case over the weekend and putting on, you know, learning all the, I mean, you're spending 
you're talking 20 hour days. I've never done that before. And the only reason I ever did that, going to bumping elbows or learning from other people, is I was literally reading in a book when Damages Evolving came out with Nick Rowley and David Ball when they were updating things. And I believe it's that book, maybe I'm wrong, but in a book, I think it's that one, Nick Rowley's talking about a story very similar to that, where he's got a friend, I think in Iowa, some kind of case, reaches out to him like a Friday or Thursday before trial, and he jumps in. And he actually ends up going out there and picking a jury. Knowing that that's possible, knowing that you can do that, I was really comfortable Friday going, all right, I've, I try cases. I know how to try a case. I know how to pick a jury. I know how to do this. What are the themes in this case? What's the emotional connection? You know, what, what's the, the kind of roller coaster of emotions? That was a case where the guy had an aneurysm, was going to die. He lived at home, 70 years old, had an aneurysm, going to die. They do a miraculous job at the Cleveland Clinic saving him. He has brain surgery, craniotomy, and the family, though, goes through this thing of, oh, man, they're, you know, he's going to die. They prepare themselves for that in the hospital. And, and just out of a miracle, they get, he gets the second chance at life. He gets the second gift. And he goes to this rehab facility where their only job is to make sure he doesn't fall. And what do they do? They let him fall. And they let him fall five times. And that last time he falls, he hits his head and gets a big subdural hematoma, a big, big brain bleed that crushes his skull. They don't send him out for a couple of hours, and he dies. So... I'm hearing the story. I mean, what's the emotional connection here? Hooks me. And it was that. It was that he got this second chance at life. The family goes from this grieving process to they're on cloud nine. They are so happy. Thank you, Jesus. And just to have that ripped away from them by people who didn't do the most minimal thing possible. And once I got that hook, I go, okay, trials, I got trial. Doesn't matter. I got it from here on out. I know what the hook is going to be. So, but going back to what you said, that fear, things slowing down, you know, you would have asked me, if you asked me two years ago, if I would take a trial, take a case the Friday before trial, no way, no way. But just knowing that other people have done that and been successful, I'm like, all right, it's possible. If this person can do it, I can do it. I'll, I'll push myself. So what happened? There we are. It was a $5 million verdict. It was the largest verdict, I believe, in the county history. So for a nursing home case. Right. That's a pretty good result. And speaking of results, because we know each other, because our mutual friend, Matt Nakajima, you know, hit me up the other day. He's like, oh, you got to meet this guy, Mike Hill. He's really crushing it. So I know that you had a pretty good year or last few trials, and we're going to do some case analysis on those. So let's talk about those cases and give a little snapshot in case people want to tune in when you do do the full breakdown to see how you put these cases together that seem to have no actual, I mean, that, like the actual, if we just focus on the, the victim, would not have a lot of value. We focus on the, the evildoer perpetrators. Now we got, you know, five, you know, seven, eight figure value. So let's talk about those one at a time. I know that the one that he brought attention to, we talked a little bit, you recently got a $26 million verdict. Is that, is my number correct? That's right. Around okay. So what was that case about? Yeah. So that's a case. And I kind of just back up a little bit, trying our, we always say try our best cases. And I think there's something to say just for trying cases, because the the four most recent trials, I want to say are $42 million, uh, $42 million in verdicts, and I think under $400,000 in final settlement offers combined, right? So bad, quote unquote, bad cases, according to insurance companies or your other lawyers or things like that, may actually be great cases in front of a jury. Just because you haven't convinced some audience doesn't mean you're not going to convince another audience. And I think we lose that sometimes. Especially, you know, I just did the math and I realized that you have a 104X on offers to verdict in that span. So that's, a, right. you know what? Because I always, people are like, always wanted to okay you know, pitch in cases to do case analysis. And I'm like, what was the offer? 
oh, it was a shitty, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like, oh, it wasn't really notable. It was like $100,000. Like, what was your offer? Like $5,000. I'm like, that's noticeable. That's a lot of people's inventory. People want to hear about that case. So I would say, you know what? Because insurance companies, they're not there to lose money. They're doing their best job to evaluate the case. And when their valuations are that far off, clearly they have a perspective that they have the wrong perspective. And so that's a good day. So you try your best cases. Yeah. And I think just try cases. I mean, just just be willing to try cases, I think, is a big one, regardless of what people tell you about the case. Now, there are some cases that you obviously just (laughs) maybe there's something fatally flawed in it. Okay, but whatever. But but short of that, just because an insurance adjuster or another colleague or somebody like that doesn't think it's a strong case. I I don't think that has any relationship sometimes to what a jury is going to think, because going to knowing your audience, those are completely different audiences. Lawyers are a different audience. We've heard forever that, oh, that this is a factor and this is a factor and this how you judge a wrongful death case and blah, 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 blah. And you've got insurance adjusters just looking at, a, there's a bunch of bean counters, right? Looking at what other lawyers have done over the, the course of the country. That has nothing to do with you. A jury has no frame of reference about what's a good case, what's a bad case, what's the value of a case. They come into this completely, completely blind. I mean, you're, you're their guide here, right? They have no frame of reference. So the two of them, when I look at a case, it's the jury is just a hundred percent different audience than probably who you've spent 95% of your time on that case talking to about it. All right. So, and so this, this last yeah, case, yeah, yeah. So it's a $26 million verdict. It's a $50,000 final offer. That's the last offer, $50,000. And so it's a case where guy, the end result is the guy suffocates essentially inhales food dies. He's 69 years old. He's been institutionalized his whole life, essentially 19 years old, shot in the head with a shotgun, survived, left to die basically on the street in Cleveland, terrible neighborhood. Has a bunch of mental health issues after that, as you can imagine being shot in the head with a shotgun. One of those things is he scarfs food. You know, literally he's scarfing food. He will inhale food if you allow him to do it. Well, he's institutionalized his whole life. Um, He's got some issues dealing with people. If he doesn't know you, I mean, he's combative. He says a lot of stuff that ain't so great. Some of it in the records you read is pretty racist. Doesn't sound great. Now he's a black guy, but <laughs> some of the stuff is not he good. What he's saying about white people, okay, it comes off pretty bad. And I got an all white jury and all white county he's in. You know, he's fighting people. He's punching people. One of the people on jury selection raised her hand and said, hey, can I talk to you at sidebars? This is when we first got started. I said, hey, I, I heard his name and I heard this nursing home and he actually punched me and I had to go on disability because he beat me up. <laughs> I mean, that's that's the that's the decedent here, okay? So did the judge give you a cost challenge on that juror? She gave me a cost challenge. Oh, okay, yeah, just trying did. to see what the bar is in Cleveland for a cost challenge. Just because She asked me, she's like, hey, are you, are you okay excluding that person? I said, yeah, judge, I think- I think, I think I can turn him. I think I'm that persuasive. I can turn him. Go ahead. So this guy, you know, the records are full of refuse, 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 refuse. I mean, it is just, you look at it and go, man, how could anybody provide care? I mean, that's the whole defense. How could anybody provide care to this guy? And so we're getting ready for trial. I go, man, this guy won't accept care. Yeah, he, he lost weight while he was there. He was dehydrated when he went to the hospital and, and he inhaled this food when nobody was supervising him and it went into his lungs. Had to be nobody was supervising him, right? If you're supervising him, how does he inhale it? But man, you're looking at it, you go, how could you actually provide care to this guy, right? I mean, this is refusal after refusal. He's punching people. Like, man, I don't know if I want to be around this guy. So we have, obviously, you have to get around that some way. There has to be a story here. And, and there were two stories that came out of that. Story number one was I went and contacted a ton of former employees 
And these are not people that have been contacted by the defense. These are not people that, you know, were told what to say or had some company line they had to walk. These were people who, who were willing to sit down with me and tell me the truth. And I started to unravel some of this stuff. And I learned, you know, these refusals didn't actually mean he refused to care. It was, we didn't have enough staff. We had a system-wide problem where we lacked staff. We could not provide care to everybody. So we would document refusals oftentimes when the care was not even offered. So we would document that a person refused their food. We may not give them their food. We would refuse, say this guy refused being, or not, not just him, but refused treatment, even if we didn't offer it to him because we didn't have enough people. And then you go start to unravel this a little bit. And what we learned was, well, were there certain kinds of people that this would happen to? We were more willing to do that. And they said, yeah, management would tell us that the reason we're doing it is we don't have enough staff, they're not going to hire staff. And if state comes in to inspect, which they do for nursing homes, if it says no care is being offered, we're going to get dinged, we're going to get penalized, we're going to get sanctioned. But if, it's, if there's an R there for refused, the state goes, oh, well, they offered the care, they did what they could do, but the person wouldn't accept it. That's the thing that happens. They're telling me, so management knows they're doing this. Management is essentially coaching them to do this. And I'm asking, I say, like, is there any kind of patients you maybe you do this for more than others, any kind of class of patients? How do you figure out who to do this for so you don't get in trouble? And she says, yeah, ones with mental health issues and ones who are nonverbal. Because if they have mental health issues, nobody's going to believe them if they say the care wasn't actually offered and we mark refusal. And if they're nonverbal, they can't tell anybody that they didn't refuse and it wasn't offered care. So you start to realize that it's, it's not about this guy being a bad guy. It's about this corporation just committing fraud and just taking money because they're gonna hire the minimum possible people and take very complex patients, take the money for those complex, complex patients and not do it and put these people's lives in jeopardy. And it wasn't just one, it was another and another. So I would start asking people, you know, these formers, I'm sitting down, I'm having lunch with them at Friendly's and Perkins and these places I would never go. <laughs> and they're telling me, I never heard of these places. Bob so, Evans, down on the farm. <laughs> yeah, right. And so they're telling me these things. You're breaking bread with them. Again, connection, right? I'm not a stale lawyer bringing in my office. I'm, I care what they have to say and I care about them. So I'm going to meet with them on their terms, you know, wearing a t-shirt and tattoos and, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there with them and they're telling me these things that, yeah, not just all these people, but him too, in particular. And, and they opened up enough with me that they were willing to say, I falsified records for this client. I falsified this guy's records and they're breaking down. They're crying in front of me. Now, what they did is technically illegal, right? But they're willing to share that. That's, that's where they are. So our, my first witness, and I've never seen this happen before, my first witness is up there. So jury selection, jury seems to be with me. Opening, I had a couple people crying during opening. So that's a good sign. And the first witness comes up, she starts crying. This is, this is a former employee. She starts crying and looks at my client and says, I am so sorry that your brother was neglected the way he was. I just want to say how sorry I am. And she's bawling. And the jury's watching this. And then my client, being a human, naturally reacts and goes, it's okay, I understand, because she's so understaffed. And the judge is like, you can't talk to each other like this. But the jury is seeing this happening. And the case is over at that point. And then it was just another of those people. It was not at that point about my client, right? It was about what this company did, who the position they put these employees in, which is always a big theme in my case. The employees are victims too. I'm not going after these aides. These aides make... Nine, ten, eleven dollars an hour. They can't put food on their table. So this same woman who's crying, I said, "Look." And it's the last question I asked her, and I don't know the answer to this, right? 
I said, if it was that bad, why did you stay there? And she's telling the jury that I didn't have any other options. My husband's on disability. I've got a kid who's sick. I have to put food on the table. I've got no other way. I had to stay there. I had to do it. And now the jury is now looking at this going, this is our community. These are, are the people in our, and it's a very downtrodden community. It was an old steel town up in Warren, Ohio, on the border of Pennsylvania. They've lost all their jobs. It's, it's not a happy place right now. And so they're hearing that, and it's not just this client or this patient was victimized. They're victimizing the people in their own community, the people who work there. This corporation has nothing good to offer anybody, and they're corrupt, and they're seeing that. So you get these large verdicts not based on this guy, but the way that this corporation has chosen to, I feel, essentially come into these companies or come into these, these towns, exploit the people who work there, put people in a situation where they have no choice, economic choice to go to other nursing homes. They underpay everybody. They grind people to dust. And then they take all those profits and they take them out and they live somewhere totally different. These are communities that, that these owners would never set foot in. So that's, in that case, that is what was the case, frankly. How'd you find all these ex-employees? Because that's a quite, a quite the gem. Yeah, shout out here to Paul Luttrell, strategic company he owns. They're experts in that. And so I contacted Paul and, and I came into this case late, as I frequently do. There was only a few months before trial. Not a lot had been done. And so the first thing I did, I knew I wasn't going to get the discovery I needed or get things up to speed or get the documents I usually get, the proof staffing cases. It wasn't going to happen. So I reached out to Paul, had coffee with him at a Starbucks up in Cleveland. He flew up here. And he's telling me, you know, what, what, his, what he can do. And he owns a company called Strategic. And I reached out to him and he got me the names of probably 30 or 40 former employees in a matter of days. I had him interview the people because I don't, I got other stuff to be doing. I don't have the time to interview all these people. Let's, you do the first round and then let's filter out who's going to be good and bad. And I'll take it from there. My staff will take it from there. And he's just an expert at that. And now actually I use him on, I use him on every case moving forward because there's, I'd been trying for years to track down these former employees. <laughs> and before that I did it the stupid way, which is I would ask defense counsel, like, Hey, I want so-and-so's deposition, right? Well, <laughs> that didn't work out very well. Cause now they're in the room and they're saying, Hey, Michael's going to try to take your license from you, which by the way, they said that in this last case, I had former employees who were still friends with other witnesses in the case who were testifying and being represented with the defense and say, Hey, Michael, they're telling me that their lawyers are saying that your goal in this case is to take their license so they can never work again. So that's, that's how shady the defense is in these cases. So Paul Luttrell, fantastic, strategic, can't recommend him enough. It's a very free plug. Free plug. Well, you know what? If they do the work, give them a free plug because that way you can help other people too. I love giving free plugs. I do too. That's why I mentioned it. Work for me. (laughs) That's that's what matters. It'll make him happy too. And so so we're doing that one on November 30th at 1.30 Eastern time, 10.30 Pacific time. And then we have two other ones on the schedule. So I think those are the the $5 million cases that you were talking about. Is that right? That's right. Two of them. One we haven't talked about, but yeah. So give us the snapshot of those before we wrap this this program up. Yeah, the other one, uh, 84-year-old guy, 84-year-old guy, he uh, lives at home semi-independently. He's got a couple of aides that comes in, you know, a couple times a day to take care of him. Had Parkinson's for about 15 years, and he didn't have long to live one way or another at 84 with Parkinson's for 15 years. Falls at home, gets compartment syndrome. They've got to do a very major surgery. It's a big toll on somebody that age. They take him to the hospital. 
you know, they do all the surgeries. He goes to a rehab facility, who I didn't sue, where he loses about 40 pounds in about two months and gets some pressure injuries, goes to the next nursing home and the pressure injuries heal. And he actually, they stabilize him. So you think they're doing a good job. Then he starts showing signs of diarrhea, stomach cramping, which would be C. diff, which is a, basically a gut, gut bacteria from antibiotics, um, which is deadly if you don't treat it. He's got those signs for several days. They don't tell the doctor. The family actually starts doing research and has a meeting with the nursing home and says, hey, I think, I think my dad has C. diff. I think he does. And they go, no, he doesn't. He doesn't have C. diff. He's just got some kind of stomach virus, but he's fine. Three days later, he's in the hospital, septic shock, C. diff. Okay, so this is a guy, and he dies. So this is a guy where, from the defense's perspective, is, hey, look, this guy had been dying for, first of all, years, but specifically for months. I mean, he lost 50, 40, 50 pounds in a matter of months after he had this traumatic injury. That's what happens to people in this situation. He's going downhill. They wanted a very long timeline, obviously. My timeline was three days. It was, hey, the family came in, said he has C. diff. He didn't. You didn't do what you're supposed to do, which is call the doctor, get him tested, and treat him. So that, that's the window, that three days. And the case was about those three days. And they wanted to make it about, look, this guy is hospice eligible. This guy probably has six months to live. This guy probably this. This guy probably that. They make it about the client. I make it about everything else. You know, and I'm not saying I don't make it about the client. I mean, this is a father, right? This is a husband. This is a great person. But I'm not talking about life expectancy. I'm not talking about he's going to have some glorious future, right? <laughs> you know, it's just not how it is. I don't want the jury putting themselves in that position, right? I don't want them thinking about that because that's not a life probably a lot of us want to live very much longer. But it comes about respecting life and really any life and how these corporations don't do that. And so that was that was in a very conservative county where they had, I think they had one medical malpractice verdict ever in its history, the largest verdict of all kind in that in that trial or in that county was $2.5 million. And this is a $5 million wrongful death only verdict. So no pain and suffering, anything like that. Wrongful death only for a guy who's probably, no matter what happens, has a few months to live. Wow. So... And then the third case, what's the third case about? Well, so the third case would be that, that case that I spoke about a moment ago where I came in the Friday before, which was, what's the hook, right? That had to be, what is, I mean, I have a weekend to figure out what is right. the hook that a jury's going to get into on this case. What is the most, like, I'm, I'm not going to be doing discovery over the weekend, obviously, right? I can read depositions, <laughs> but what's done is done, right? right? So it is, what is the emotional hook that is going to bring a jury into this and go, this is, this is a thing that can't happen. And that was that crescendo, or however you want to say it, of second chance at life stolen. Got it. And so you're going to come and teach with us for the first time out in Huntington Beach, June 5th through 8th. And, uh, and so what is it that your teaching is going to focus on in Huntington Beach? Yeah, so I think when it comes to the nursing home practice at all, I think, I think it has to come down to how you increase the value of these cases. And we've been trying them wrong. And I was trying them wrong, I think, for a long time. Because in the personal injury world, we focus on our clients more than anything. We, we just do. We love our clients and I love these families, but it's a very different dynamic, right? If you lose, you know, you have a husband, for example, who's 40 years old, who's got three kids, who's a wage earner and mom's going to lose the house now, right? Without, without, you know, his income coming in and you've got kids who are missing their father. That's a very different situation 
than somebody at the end of their life. And if you try the case that way, if you try the case like you would other personal injury cases, I think you're destined to have a very low verdict. And I think that's what we've had traditionally. So I think framing damages in a way very specific for your case and making that connection to increase wrongful death damages with people who don't, you know, don't have a lot to offer society. These are people that are institutionalized for the rest of their life, and it might not be a great rest of their life, and it might be a very short rest of their life. So that's a huge thing. And I think also, you know, one of the things is also just jury selection. I mean, I think jury selection, we talk about it all the time. We all talk about it because we know how important it is. But it's the number one thing that when I go and watch other people try cases, that they fall flat on their face. They just do. And, and so much of it is just watched a trial not long ago where, again, what did I see? It was Keith Mitnick's pieting contest, right? It's the first thing I hear about is the bias in the pieting contest, which is awesome. And it's great for Keith Mitnick. But you clearly have never been to a fair or, or been part of a piting contest or whatever the hell it is, you know, pie choosing contest. You like cherry pie. We can all tell that you do. OK, it is not you. I love the idea, but it is not at all. You look you look like you're doing someone else's act. I mean, you do. Right. So so finding out works for you, taking those things and making them yours in a way that is that somebody watches and goes, OK, yeah, this is something real. I'm not being I'm not this guy's not a fraud. OK, and if you're a great actor, hey, take somebody else's stuff and do it. All right. If you're because actors do it. Right. But you're probably not because if you were, you'd probably be making a lot more money than we do acting. All right. That makes a lot of sense. And so if you do want to you know, come to Huntington Beach, which is a great idea that you can you know, find at triallawyersuniversity.com, the registration for it. It's at the Paseo Hotel. There's only 220 rooms in the whole hotel. So I was just at a conference this past weekend, TL's the business of law. And I registered three months ago and I still got to the overflow block. I'm like, that's crazy that far in advance. And the overflow block was a half a mile from the hotel. Overflow blocks are great, but they suck. I'll be at the main hotel. And so any of you out there like me, likes to be at the main hotel, you want to register sooner than later because it'll probably be filled up by the, you know, middle of December, beginning of January, the latest, because there's so many great trial lawyers coming to this thing besides Mike. But, you know, we got Panish, we got Raleigh, we got Freed, we got Claggett. So many more to, you know, uh, this guy, you know, Steve DeBosier from Dudley DeBosier has never been to any of our stuff before. So him and his partner are coming. He's going to be teaching about trial and Chad's going to be teaching about business and just, you know, and just it goes on and on. But also, if you do can't make that one, October 16th through 19th is Caesars Palace in Las Vegas. That's going to be a really big show because Vegas is pretty fun. I live here and I, and I get to look out my window every day and I see Caesars Palace. So it really helps me focus on that, too. And if you can't see Mike's thing, Mike's webinar is live. His case analysis is live. They're all recorded and they're all accessible at any time on tluondemand.com which is also an app for your phone, which is really modern, having an app to learn. I just discovered this a few months ago. Getting into the 21st century is a very exciting place to be, up to date with technology. So, Mike, it was great having you here and you know finding out about the stuff and getting to know you a lot better and your story. So thanks for visiting. And really appreciate we'll it. see you definitely on the 30th of November. And Because, you know, got a, we got a different jury out there, a jury of our peers on these webinars. That's right. That's so, right. So you take care, have a great day, and uh, we'll have set up a time to do these preps. Well, thank you so much. Ready to train with the Titans and set records with your verdicts? Register for our live conferences and boot camps at triallawyersuniversity.com. Start getting your reps in before the big event by going to tluondemand.com 
to gain instant access to live lectures, case analysis, and skills training videos from the trial lawyer champions you love and respect, as well as pleadings, transcripts, PowerPoints, and notes for a roadmap to victory. Join the group that continues to get extraordinary results. Trial Lawyers University. Produced and powered by LawPods.